Hello, everybody. It's Rob here from Thieves, Rogues, and Renegades, reminding you that if you like our show and think we deserve some financial support for what we do, you can go to www.patreon.com slash trrpod to become a member. And if you don't want to, well, not a problem. Just ignore that strange feeling you have, that tingling on the back of your neck, that sinking feeling that someone is right behind you, watching, always watching. Anyway, hold fast and enjoy the show. You smell different when you sleep. problem that Andrew Jackson had is that people were keeping him tamped down. He really wasn't allowed to fully be himself, you know? Sometimes you just gotta let old Hickory be old Hickory, you know? <laughs> you know, he, he, was, he, he, he kept himself in a really small little box, you know? Just not allowed to let his personality shine. He was like all the kids from the Mickey Mouse Club that turned out super fucked. Yeah. <laughs> He's, are you saying he's the Annette Funicello of presidents? Ah, Funicello turned out pretty good. I'm thinking more like the like Spears Aguilera. Oh, that era. Okay. Yeah. Not the not Where, the OG. Like Timberlake's the only one that got out alive. Oh, yeah. Ugh. It was deeply upsetting when Aguilera started committing genocide. Mm. <laughs> yeah, I remember the Do you do you remember the uh the the teen pop creek wars of the early 2000s? <laughs> you know. Of uh, all the all four members of ninety eight degrees carrying out a genocidal campaign against the Seminole down in Florida. I do remember the gelled sandal trail of tears. Woof! <laughs> <laughs> oh, we're starting off great. Oh God! Speaking of absolute crimes against humanity, this is Thieves, Rogues, and Renegades. I'm Rob North. I am your co-host, Chris Miller. I am Kyle Graber. You are. You are disgusting, <laughs> is what you are. And today we are going into part two of our series on the Lafitte brothers. We conclude our exploration of the lives of brothers Pierre and Jean Lafitte, the most famous pirates, smugglers, black marketeers, mercenaries, freedom fighters, businessmen, swamp dwellers, and all-around ne'er-do-wells to ever grace the city of New Orleans. Dare I say patriots? Were they? Kind of. Kind hmm. of. In like a like the most brutally practical way. In in kind of in the way that we're all Ukrainian patriots. Yeah. I like it. Anyway. The French born Corsairs had made a real name for themselves, and by the waning days of the War of eighteen twelve, which instead of being bad for business had been incredibly lucrative for the Canadian and opportunistic brothers. They were running the biggest underground operation on the mouth of the Mississippi River, out in the middle of the bayous nonetheless, but they had become victims of their own success. As the British set their sights on New Orleans, and the Americans sought to protect the strategically vital port, the Lafittes had earned the ire of both warring parties and had found themselves on the wrong side of both the law and a war that was not going well. With the British bearing down on the Big Easy, it looked like the Lafittes may be done for. Would their efforts be for naught, or would they find redemption and a way to keep their star rising and their legend increasing? And we're going to find out more, more about that and just how their legacy is still with us today as we finish our series. But first, let's give honor to our sources. We have The Pirate's Lafitte, The Treacherous World of the Corsairs of the Gulf by William C. Davis. Again, if you want to know a lot about maritime law... <laughs> 
that's a lot about maritime law. Book's yeah. really good, but it is. Yeah. That's a lot. Hey, I mean, he found his niche, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Uh, we also have Jean Lafitte Revealed, uh, which is actually not the Rule 34 version of this podcast. Uh, it's a book by Ashley Oliphant and Beth Yarborough. And we also have Patriotic Fire, Andrew Jackson and Jean Lafitte at the Battle of New Orleans by Winston Groom, who actually does sound like he should be the author of the Rule 34 version of Jean Lafitte Revealed. <laughs> so, gentlemen, any points of order before we go into part two of our story? All no, right. I, think we're, I think we're good. We covered a lot of territory in the first one, and there's definitely going to be a tonal change. A bit. In this one. It's yeah. Good. I mean, they're already like, they just hang out with Andrew Jackson. <laughs> <laughs> they, they, this is where they really start like ramping up the forest gumpage. Well, as they say in that neck of the woods, laissez le bon temps rouler, on with the story. Now, by November of 1814, the War of 1812 was not going well for the United States. Their invasion of Canada had failed. The capital at Washington, D.C. had been burned to the ground. The Royal Navy had choked off maritime trade and completely flatlined the economy. And the Americans were just barely holding on. I'm almost embarrassed to admit, like, this is not a conflict I've studied an awful lot myself. Mm-hmm. Didn't realize we were the initial aggressors in this Oh, yeah. One. Oh, yeah, no, it was 100% our fault. There's, yeah. there's literally no way to spin that. Like, it was 100%, like, American aggression. You ever seen a little guy pick a fight with a big dude in a bar, walk up, take a swing at him, and then just get leveled? Yeah. That's what this was. Mm-hmm. Right, they... they Torch DC, like we burned your capital to the ground. Like, uh uh-uh, uh, yeah. not our capital we, anymore. <laughs> it's a war it's a war that we started by invading Canada, hoping they would be, greet us as liberators and become part of the United States. I'm glad that American mistakes started very, very early in our history. Oh yeah. Oh, this isn't even That's that not early. an American thing. <laughs> Being like, greeted as liberators? Because usually they just show I mean, like, up as oppressors. Like like pretty much any time you march a country into another country that's this is this is also not long after we did launch an invasion of the muslim world oh that's right sure did (laughs) uh time is a flat circle but the news had also gotten worse for the americans the british were able to pull more forces from europe after napoleon's first abdication and were deploying a force of more than eight thousand men and 60 ships to take the strategically vital city of new orleans this would be the largest British force landed on American territory during the entire war. Because, let's not forget, during the War of 1812, the armies were not that big. But, things had also gone bad for Pierre and Jean Lafitte. Pierre had recently been jailed by the local authorities and was in hiding, even though he had escaped, probably with some help. And Jean had nearly been captured by the U.S. Navy when they overran his base of operations in the Baratarian Bayou, south of New Orleans, and was on the run from capture. New Orleans was also in a bad state. It only had a thousand men under arms, including a small force of regulars, but mostly Louisiana Scratch militia, and that was all that was present to defend the city, along with a small force of gunboats and light warships, but the city had no dedicated defenses or artillery. It was a sitting duck. Now prepare to be annoyed, because now (laughs) enters General Andrew Jackson. Jackson was a wealthy landowner and politician in his home state of Tennessee, active in state and federal politics in 1796, and he was the commander of the Tennessee State Militia, and had gotten the nod from the War Department to take command of the defense of New Orleans once the intelligence of the coming British attack had been uncovered. Now, Jackson was, and this is probably massive understatement, a bombastic sort, and had a reputation as a fearless commander, but also as a martinet with a short fuse, and had a reputation for dueling and brawling. 
He'd fight you and he would either be a complete gentleman about it or he would just run up, kick you in the nuts and try to stab you in the neck. <laughs> there wasn't like... This This is the guy that got... Like, when he died, he had, he had a bunch of bullets in him. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, <laughs> just a bunch of lead balls just wedged in him. And he never knew quite which way he was going to approach it because some days it was pistols at dawn upon the field of honor. You know, I, I will have satisfaction, sir. Slap you with the, the fabric glove. But other times it was just, or he's tackled you and he's trying to kick the shit out of you in the middle of a dirt road. Bar stool just hit you in the head. And yeah. Just... And he was doing this after the war while he was the seventh president of the United States. Yeah. Probably the only... Actually, have there been any other presidents that got into a fist fight while they were serving that we know of? That we know of? I don't think so. Mm. Was it the... Yeah, it was the... the assassination attempt on well I mean Jackson. FDR, FDR probably had to take a few swings at Eleanor when she was feeling a little squirrely and <sighs> wanted a piece yeah hit her with a three piece man <laughs> <laughs> but I, like it was after his assass- come here Franklin his assassination attempt well it makes sense <laughs> well they didn't have recording devices back then oh wait a minute yeah um, but after his assassination attempt whenever he was just beaten mercilessly like the assassin was beat by like Every hero of the Alamo. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's like, yeah, and then Davy Crockett just kicked the shit out of him. Like, wait a minute. Oh, hey, it was a real guy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so. <laughs> what a weird time, man. Yeah. What a yeah. fun time. Yeah. And Andrew Jackson was also, quite frankly, nothing short of a genocidal maniac. He'd had Rolston to play in the various conflicts against indigenous nations that had been fought in the early part of the 19th century, and in these wars against nations like the Creek, the Red Sticks, and the Shawnee, Jackson showed no compunction against the use of scorched earth tactics and starvation as a weapon, and not only condoned, but encouraged the killing of civilians and of prisoners of war, the selling of captured civilians into slavery, and unfettered rape and looting. He's often quoted as saying that he didn't seek to defeat his native enemies, he sought to annihilate them. He was also a slave owner, with 150 human beings serving in bondage on his Tennessee plantation, and he had a reputation as a, being a particularly cruel master, and was noted as offering extra bounties on enslaved people that ran away from his plantation to anyone who doled out excess beatings to the captured runaways. Real nice guy. He was DiCaprio's character from freaking from Django, Django Unchained. Yeah. No, there's there are handbills that survive to this day from Jackson's plantation, the Hermitage, where they would have an enslaved person who would run away, and there would be a note at the bottom that said, 10 extra dollars of bounty to anyone who gives 100 lashes to the escaped runaway. Good God. And, and I mean, it's... There's no jokes to be made here. No, it's just, he was, it's, no, it's this guy's just a monster. <laughs> and anyway, this is the one they put in, con, in the charge of the defense of New Orleans, a city full of something he probably really didn't like: free people of color. And right now, arriving in New Orleans on December first, eighteen fourteen, with a column of regulars and Tennessee militia, Jackson took one look around at all the free people of color, those of French and Spanish descent and local Cherokee and Choctaw people, and decided that, according to him, none of them could be trusted, and he instituted strict martial law within the city. But as more intel came in about the incoming British offensive, he realized that, despite showing up with reinforcements, he would be outnumbered by four to one. But he remained unwilling to arm the people he disliked. 
Not only, not only not that he could arm them, even if he wanted to. The city was short of firearms and spare artillery, and gunpowder was at an absolute premium. Now, the great and good of the city's various communities pleaded with Jackson to change his mind, and after several weeks, he finally relented, taking into his force various militia units of French and Spanish whites, free men of color, Native Americans, and even made an offer to purchase enslaved people from the surrounding plantations and granting them manumission in return for service in the battle to come. Basically, I'll buy your slaves if they fight for me, so you can then go purchase somebody else to replace them. Swell. Weird time, man. And this is somebody we wrap up as like... Uh, I don't think we kind of wrap him up in the Founding Fathers, but there are people who fucking idolize this guy, and I don't understand why. I can probably ballpark why. Actually, now that you mention it, yeah. <laughs> uh, I could probably take a stab at it. Mm-hmm. There's a reason why the last guy in office put his picture back in there. Mm-hmm. Yep. Now, however, there was still the issue of no muskets, no cannons, and little gunpowder. Then a letter arrived to the general, signed by Jean and Pierre Lafitte. It offered the services of the brothers and their men in return for a pardon from the United States and the brothers keeping their activities above board and legal after the conclusion of the war. Now, Jackson offered to meet with Lafitte, and they sat down together in the last week of November 1814. Jackson said he was amenable to having Lafitte's men serve in his force, but that he didn't have the means to arm them or any of the other new volunteers, for that matter. (laughs) I'm not kidding. They were going to build pikes, spears. They were going to arm these people with spears, like it's, you know, the English Civil War, to defend New Orleans. But Lafitte sighed deeply and stated that he had a solution to that problem. Hidden somewhere in the bayous south of the city, he managed to acquire a large stock of muskets, and he would give Jackson and his force 5,000 firearms as a gesture of good faith and loyalty. Now Jackson agreed, but brought up the lack of powder. No worries, said the Lafitte's. Uh, It just so happens that we have a few hundred barrels of gunpowder also hidden down in the bayous, and it's yours if you give the time for me and my men to go get it. So, Pierre and Jean Lafitte had found a way out of their legal bind and became a part of the planning meetings with Jackson and his staff. When Jackson's concerns over the lack of artillery was brought up, the Lafitte's raised their hands again and said, yeah, we got that too if you want it. (laughs) They they suddenly found themselves very, very useful. And they hauled a dozen cannons out of a secret spot in the swamp. Mm -hmm. Now, preparations began, and it only remained to be seen if the Lafitte's would survive the fight to come. Now, on the 14th of December... The British fleet anchored in the Gulf of Mexico, east of Lake Pontchartrain, and the landing of General Edward Pakenham's army began. However, the first American obstacle still had to be overcome. That same day, a force of nearly a thousand British sailors and marines aboard 42 small boats attacked five American gunboats under Lieutenant uh, Thomas F. Catesby Jones, stationed on Lake Borneo, a tidal lagoon on the north end of the Delta Bayous. Now, having unfettered access to the lake was necessary if the army was going to be moved towards New Orleans itself. In a brief but fierce engagement, the American squadron inflicted significant losses on the British attackers, but all five gunboats were overcome and captured. However, once the British army crossed the lake, it still had to contend with harsh, swampy ground and various river and stream channels that made navigation difficult and progress slow. This gave Jackson more time than he originally thought he had, and in the period it took for the British to progress up the river towards New Orleans... Much was accomplished, much of it with the help of the Lafitte brothers and their men. Two warships, the 16-gun sloop of war USS Louisiana and the 15-gun schooner USS Carolina, arrived to provide maritime support to Jackson's force along the Mississippi River. 
and the Lafitte's agreed to provide some of their more experienced navigators as pilots and some of their best crewmen to help pad the numbers aboard the somewhat undermanned vessels. Jackson, with the help of the locals, also managed to find a good spot to construct a defensive line on the Chalmette Plantation, about four miles southeast of the Old French Quarter, right on the eastern bank of the Mississippi. And I mean, it is right up against the river. It's one side of this battlefield is the levee <laughs> that's now there. Have you, Chris, I know you've been down in New Orleans. Did you go to the battlefield? I don't fucking remember what I did in New Orleans. <laughs> okay, that's a very I remember good point. Getting, I remember eating beignets and then halfway through my second hurricane. And then I don't know, man. I know I didn't go yeah. to my hotel. <laughs> <laughs> I just I just showered and left. That's all, that's all I really remember. <laughs> Well, the battle- I can assure you, I did yeah. not go to museums and battlefields. But the battlefield itself Unless is you actually, count Bourbon Street. Yeah. <laughs> Which is a battlefield in itself. And kind of a museum. Uh, yeah, that's a good point. But the, yeah, the, the, the Chalmette Plantation battlefield is actually very compact. It's, and they've reconstructed the, the battlefield as it kind of looked at that time. And it's 400 yards across. Is that where they f- release water from the levees and flooded portions of it? Or is that another location? You're thinking of a different location. Okay. Yeah, so that's actually they did a lot of that to actually impede the advance yeah. of the British up the up the river. Which makes perfect sense. Which yeah makes a lot of sense. Now on that plantation was a small man-made waterway called the Rodriguez Canal that traveled from the Mississippi River itself on a straight line into and through the bayou that started a few hundred yards inland. Now with the help of Lafitte's men, a lot of the locals, and let's be honest here, more than a few enslaved people, Jackson's force dug out the canal bottom and turned it into a 15-foot-wide, 8-foot-deep ditch, and piled the earth on the far side and backed it with timber to create an earthwork that stood as high as the average man's shoulder and more than 8 feet thick. (laughs) Now, along this 400-yard-long fortification were built several bastions meant to contain small batteries of artillery, and the Americans placed 12 cannons, ranging from the usual 6- and 12-pounder field guns, to a massive 32-pounder naval gun, which is a... Big piece of artillery. It's a big one. <laughs> it's a big one. And uh, not only was the artillery present, but so were the naval vessels and reinforcements that kept arriving. And it was a real grab bag of a force, quite easily the most diverse in American history up to that point. Now, Jackson's force totaled about 4,700 men and included in its ranks a couple regiments of Army regulars, a small force of U.S. Marines, a small force of U.S. Navy sailors, about 1,000 Louisiana militia, of whom about 60% were free men of color, or recently emancipated enslaved people, about 1,300 Tennessee militia, 1,000 Kentucky militia, 150 Mississippi militia, 52 Choctaw fighters, about a similar number of Cherokee fighters, 60 uh, light dragoons, and about 80 of Jean Lafitte's Baratarian pirates. Under the local commit who were under the local command of Renato Belouche and Dominique Yo, who we spoke about in the last episode. This force was significant and entrenched, but inexperienced, and most units hadn't fought together before. But Jackson didn't seem to mind, and wasn't simply content to sit and wait behind his fortifications. Oh, On the he night seemed of- like such a patient individual. Yeah, very measured guy. That's his reputation. On the night of December 23rd, he stole a night march, and based on the intelligence provided by a local French plantation owner... He sent 2,000 of his men to attack the British camp in darkness. They succeeded, and the night of the 23rd was split with the crack of musket volleys and the crash of cannons as the Louisiana and the Carolina fired broadsides into the British camp from the river, 
before the American forces retired back into the night. They actually almost killed the entire British staff. That's such a shitty way All the British general staff was sitting down to dinner, and a 24-pounder cannonball from the USS Carolina smashed the dining room table they were eating at. Yeah, it gutted their entire leadership structure. Well, no, it missed all of those guys. It only busted the table, but it almost took them all out. Yeah, they were that fucking close. And uh, the American forces retired back into the night. British losses weren't especially heavy, but the shock of the night attack did set them back on their heels and gave Jackson more time to prepare for their arrival. Now, on Christmas Day, Pakenham and his army arrived on the battlefield in front of the Chalmette Plantation defenses and proved that things weren't going to go all the Americans' way. Pakenham brought up nine heavy naval guns, borrowed, of course, and a portable furnace, and they began to fire heated round shot into the anchored American naval vessels on the river. Hmm. The USS Carolina ran aground, and the USS Louisiana tried to pull away upriver, but was stuck in place, becalmed by a lack of breeze. Lafitte and his pirates, seeing that the ships were in trouble, took to small boats and rowed out to assist, under fire the whole time, mind you, and managed to help evacuate the entire crew of the doomed USS Carolina and get a few of her guns ashore before a red-hot cannonball set some of the ship's timbers alight and the flames soon found the powder magazine, detonating the vessel in a massive explosion that was heard 43 miles away in Port St. Louis, Mississippi. Now, luckily, there was no one still on board. The vessel was completely empty. The pirates tied their boats to the becalmed USS Louisiana and began to row hell for leather under cannon fire the whole time, pulling the vessel out of harm's way and saving her from a similar fate. Now, the bravery and ingenuity of Lafitte's men allowed for a continued naval presence on the Mississippi and allowed the Americans to construct a gun battery on the far bank of the river using cannons rescued from the late USS Carolina. Now, on the 28th of December, the British decided to conduct a reconnaissance in force, sending parties of light infantry forward to test the strength of the American defenses and find any potential weak points. Now, engaging up and down the line, the British also spread out into the swamp on the left side of the American fortifications, flanking the American defenses and setting several units of militia into retreat. Not a good sign. Now, if Pakenham had committed troops at this time, he might have chased Jackson's forces out of the defenses. However, the units of free men of color reinforced the American flank and held the British, and on the right side of the American line, the the landed naval guns and the battery across the river drove the British back, causing the reconnaissance in force to falter and retreat. And though there were losses on both sides, casualties were light. Now, Jean Lafitte, who was actually present on the field when that happened, because he was uh, he had landed and come down to inspect his men and their gun positions, suggested to Jackson and his staff that they extend the defensive fortification into the swamp itself, which Jackson rightly pegged as a difficult task. However, Lafitte volunteered his own men for the job, who were actually pretty experienced at the fine art of building shit in the swamp. And over the next few days, the American line was extended another 100 yards to the east. This decision and Lafitte's read on the situation would bear fruit. On New Year's Day, 1815, General Jackson decided that some celebrations were in order to boost the morale of the locals and of the defenders. Behind the defenses along the canal, he organized a series of parades and demonstrations for the citizens of New Orleans, with about 4,000 of the Americans in parade order, while people took carriages and horses down from the city to watch. And all the while, he and his staff took breakfast at the nearby plantation house. At 10 a.m., however, all hell broke loose. From the British positions, 22 artillery pieces out, out behind makeshift fortifications made out of barrels full of sugar 
opened up as one, sending heavy iron round shot shells and rockets into the American lines. The units on parade and the civilians there to watch them scattered in complete panic. Now, nearly 100 rounds ripped into the house, covering Jackson and his officers in plaster and nearly collapsing the building, making them flee for their lives. Officers struggled to get their troops back into ranks and manning the defenses. It was bedlam, and if the British attacked now, they would easily carry the defenses and carry on the march into New Orleans itself. Now, one Lieutenant Gleig of the British 95th Light Foot Regiment later wrote, quote, The ranks were broken, the different corps dispersing, fled in all directions, while the utmost terror and disorder appeared to prevail. Nothing but confused crowds could be observed. Oh, had we charged at that instant, end quote. But no assault came, and two groups of Americans, or two groups, excuse me, in the American line, stood their ground. Two battalions of free men of color from the city of New Orleans stayed at the defensive line and hunkered down with really nothing to do but wait, the coming, wait out the coming attack, and the other group was Lafitte's Pirates, led by Renato Belouche and Dominique Yo, who without hesitation and staying cool under fire, loaded their weapons and began to conduct a counter-battery response. The British fire was heavy, but was either inaccurate or completely absorbed by the fortifications. The fire of Lafitte's men, however, was nasty. In the span of 45 minutes, they managed to destroy 13 of the British guns and caused dozens of casualties. Their heavier naval guns made easy work of the sugar barrel fortifications, blasting the casks apart and sending splinters flying into the bodies of the British artillerists. And flying clouds of sugar extinguished gun fuses or got into the hot barrels and melted, rendering several of the surviving guns unusable due to being gummed up by caramel. I mean, it's a sweet death, at least. Oh. <laughs> oh, it's like Keith is in the room. It's like he never <laughs> left. Oh, God. Yeah. The scattered American units, seeing the bravery of the men who stood and fought, rallied and began to reform, heartened by the example set by the men of color and the pirate gunners, solidifying the line. By noon, the British fire slackened off as the remaining guns expended all of their ammunition to no gain. The Americans had suffered 23 casualties, but inflicted over 100 in return. And they still had plenty of ammo, while the British had burned through their entire artillery supply. Now, over the next week, a few more reinforcements trickled in to supplement American numbers, and another two regiments of British regulars arrived in the bay across the bayous after, what I, I would call them, significant difficulties. There are diary entries from British soldiers. It sounds very unpleasant. They hated operating in New Orleans, or in New Louisiana. They hated it. They went, this is the worst place in the world. I would rather go through the entire Peninsula campaign in Spain again and these guys, than fight. These guys likely heard stories about how hellish it was from the first time that British soldiers were in the, the American Deep South mm -hmm. and how bad it was then. So they probably had an idea of just how shitty it was going to be, and now they can't shoot their guns because they're full of caramel. <laughs> or, so now, now, while you're being devoured by alligators, you're also being murdered by pirates. <laughs> yeah. Or or the guns are in pieces from giant naval cannonballs fired yeah, now by angry with pirates. 24-pounders. 24-pounder, 32-pounder. Okay. They have... A six-pounder on that battlefield. They have a six-pounder and a 32-pounder sitting right next to each other. It's exponentially larger. And it just says, don't talk to me or my son ever again, is what it looks like. <laughs> <laughs> is what it looks like. This six-pounder... A six-pound cannonball's not that big. Like, we all think of, like, six -pound Bugs Bunny-looking cannonballs. It's about the size of a baseball. Yeah. A 32-pound <sighs> cannonball 
is the size of a honeydew. And it's solid metal. It's huge. Yeah. So, 8,000 British regulars stood ready to launch the assault, staring across the Chalmette Plantation at 4,700 Americans of mixed training and professionalism. A week went by with some light skirmishing, to no, to no real result. But soon Pakenham had his full forces to hand and had a plan. The time had come for the final assault on New Orleans. Now on January 8, 1815, the main attack finally came. At dawn, as fog laid heavy on the ground, Pakenham's 8,000 men began what was meant to be a two-pronged attack. A force on the far bank of the Mississippi would attack and seize the American battery there, driving off the force guarding it and turning the guns to open fire straight down the American line behind the earthworks with devastating enfilading cannon shot, sure to cause enormous casualties and damaging morale. Now this fire would then assist the main British assault on the east bank of the river, coming in full frontal against the American forces, crossing the canal and climbing the earthworks. The West Bank force dug a canal to travel from the swamp to the river and prepared to embark on more than 40 boats, but whilst they were rowing down the canal, the sides of it collapsed, and all the boats on and the West Bank assault force got mired in mud. Now, they would launch their attack against the American gun battery and the 700 militia defending it, but they would do it about eight hours late. On the East Bank, Pakenham, not hearing the sounds of the early morning attack across the river, decided to launch his main assault anyway, knowing that he outnumbered the Americans by almost two to one and had a force of professionals against a disparate force of mostly militia, who were likely to take off and run under sustained assault, or so he thought. This is probably grossly simplifying things, but like, from the second I started researching this, in my head, I see every single one of these southern militiamen as the barefoot redhead from Gator Bait. <laughs> Just executing people who don't belong in that swamp. Um, He probably wasn't a redhead, but you're not far off. Yeah. Yeah. You're, you really aren't, off, aren't, aren't that wrong. Uh, so, giving an order that I'm guessing was the early 19th century highbrow version of fuck it, we're doing it live, <laughs> Pakenham and his brigade commanders marshaled their men, and as the morning fog lifted, line after line of red-clad British infantry stepped into the field, many carrying ladders and bundles of sticks called fascines, meant to help them more easily cross the canal and surmount the American fortifications. When, when you went down the Louisiana, you remembered to bring your heavy wool jacket, right? Of course. Yeah. Yes. I brought one for each day. Right. It's summer, yeah. Kyle. Yes. I'm going to sweat. <laughs> Plus, my mother sewed the labels in Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, <laughs> Friday, Saturday. <laughs> I'm, I'm not going to let the work of Mighty Deb go to waste. <laughs> Just uh, make sure it's nice and red so yep. that you can hide in the swamp. Exactly. Now, immediately, the well-placed and skillfully manned American cannons opened up on them. Lafitte's Baratarian pirates delivering accurate round shot into the British troops Heavy cannonballs smashing men in a truly gruesome way. And I do mean smash, because that's what cannonballs do. They don't cut, they don't slice. They just kind of break through you. Now the British, honed <laughs> by... Yeah. It's the reality of it. it. It is. Yeah. Now the British, honed by battle against Napoleon's legions, advanced undeterred. But as they came closer, the crackling of musketry could be heard among the blast of artillery... And far beyond usual engagement range, officers and standard bearers began to fall, pierced by bullets from the Kentucky militia's long Pennsylvania rifles. Dude, these guys are incredible shots. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Capable of hitting a man-sized target at 300 yards. This is at a time when the usual infantry engagement range was about 50 yards. If that. If You're that. still shooting a metal marble out of a smooth barrel. Yeah. 
Now, the flat open field of the Chalmette Plantation, and it is flat and open, was no protection whatsoever. And the British artillery, what was left of it anyway, had no ammunition with with which to support the infantry advance. Soon, more round shot began to whip down the advancing British line, this time from the flank, as the battery across the river began to enfilade the attacking British. Shots smashing down six, eight, ten, twelve men at a time as it rocketed down their lines. Soon as the range closed, Lafitte's men switched to firing grape shot. Small iron balls which basically turned their cannons into giant shotguns, blasting gaping holes in the British lines, and soon a fusillade of musket fire joined as the American regulars and the rest of the militia stood to, aimed their muskets over the parapet, and unleashed a withering fire on the advancing enemy. Men fell in droves, and the leading regiments were cut to pieces, falling in the same lines in which they advanced. The screams and cries of the wounded, an undertone to the endless thunder of American fire. The British advance began to break down as rifle fire picked off more officers. Men dropped their ladders and fascines too early or by mistake, and units had to double back under fire to pick up their gear, taking more losses as they went. The British eventually closed within firing range and fired by ordered rank, showing immense courage and discipline, but doing very little else as the logs and earth of the parapet behind the canal protected the American force from almost all return fire. Packenham ordered a light infantry battalion to attack through the swamp where he previously thought the American line ended to turn their flank and get the route started, but they discovered the line extended at John Lafitte's suggestion, manned by a mixed battalion of Mississippi militia and Choctaw volunteers who drove them back with severe losses, holding the American left flank as if they were rooted into the ground itself. The British advance was grinding to a halt. Pakenham rode forward to rally his faltering troops, waving his hat to encourage the men to drive the untrained militia from their fortifications, shouting, Shame! Shame! Recollect, gentlemen, that you are British! Forward, my men! Forward! As he rode forward, a ball of grape shots shattered his left knee and killed his horse. Now helped to his feet by his aide-de-camp, Pakenham was then shot in the left arm by a rifle bullet, but stayed on his feet and mounted a fresh horse. Now what happened next is a matter of some contention. A surviving British officer's diary stated that Pakenham rode forward before being caught in another cluster of grape shot that toppled his horse and put a round right through his spine. Now Andrew Jackson himself would write in a a later letter to James Monroe, quote, I heard a single rifle shot from a group of carts we had been using, and a moment thereafter I saw Pakenham reel and pitch out of his saddle. I've always believed he fell from the bullet of a free man of color who was a famous rifle shot and came from Attapakis Parish. No, I did not know where General Pakenham was lying, or I should have sent to him or gone in person to offer any service in my power to render. I was told he lived two hours after he was hit. His wound was through the liver and bowels and spine. Now, Jackson was at least right in one regard. Pakenham was taken on a stretcher from the field, command passed to his second-in-command, Major General Gibbs, and he died about two hours later at the age of 36. Ooh. Yeah. Ooh. He only, had, he only had one day until retirement from the force. Yeah. <laughs> Getting too old for this shit. It's unfortunate that, like, there there is a weird kind of black comedy to this where, like, as he's, like, they're just shooting horses out from under him. They're mm-hmm. just throwing him on a new horse. And then that horse gets shot out from under him. It's just how it worked, man. He loses a body part. So they just... Prop him up on a different horse, and as he's issuing orders, he just keeps getting horses murdered. Yeah. Well, there was that. There was that. Uh, that Confederate commander in Pickett's charge. I forget his name, but he, in the course of the advance, he went through nine, nine horses, horses. before he finally got up to the Union line and then got shot in the head. Right. 
Like there, there's some, there's something. There's it, a it crippled the like any semblance of a cavalry counterattack because they were going through horses so fast. Yeah. They needed to put the commanders <laughs> on a horseback, and they were just. Like, that's just, the way it was. You were meant right? to be seen. You were meant to be an example to your men. There's a, there's a comic banality to this kind of combat. Like when you think that all of these British are advancing in these bright uniforms and you know, drums an and fifes playing and flags everywhere, it's just. And you got a bunch of Kentucky hunters picking you off from three hundred yards. You know, a bunch of guys from, bunch of guys from downtown the, New Orleans yelling "Koshal" at you as they the, fire the actual swamp people. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> at this point, it's not like even on the advance, it's less warfare, and you are being hunted. What's it like, like when, when the weird you're under whites of West Virginia take on the U.S. Marines? This is what the modern equivalent would be. Yeah. It, oh God, I was thinking about those assholes, the Bundys, whenever they. They liberated a fucking shed. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah, we we did it. We won. Remember like, when people kept mailing them dildos and glitter? <laughs> so funny. But they were in like pizza boxes and shit, so they thought yeah. they were getting pizza and it was just dildos. I love it. I love it. You think they burned some of the dildos and had a funeral for them? Ah, <laughs> uh, uh, what a throwback. Yeah. So hey, go listen to our our uh, series on um, the Hellfire, Hellfire Club. Club. Yeah. For that some, was, for that was your first series talk. with us, wasn't it, Kyle? Yeah, Kyle was a guest on that one. I think I want, I think that was the one. Yeah. So Major General Gibbs also attempted to take the assault in, leading a column against the American right flank down by the river, and ordered the elite and still relatively intact 93rd Highlander Foot Regiment to make an oblique diagonal attack. Now, shortly after giving this order, Gibbs was shot in the chest and tumbled from his horse, dead within seconds. Colonel Robert Rennie, the 93rd's commander, led the gallant Scots forward, but the angle of their attack exposed them to fire from over half the American line at once. Now, the 93rd managed to reach the American line and surmount the defenses, capturing an American artillery redoubt that was closest to the Mississippi River and driving the gunners away before American regulars swiftly counterattacked and drove them back. In the space of 10 minutes... Thanks to accurate rifle and musket fire and the close-range artillery hate still being poured out with lethal efficiency by Lafitte's men, the 93rd vanished as a fighting force. Out of 850 men who took to the field on the morning of January 8th, 775 of them were casualties over the course of a 10-minute attack. Now, after the failure of the 93rd's assault, the last team went out of the British advance. The Army's third in command, General John Keane, himself shot twice, ordered the retreat, and the British regiments began to fall back, chased by the fire of the Baratarian artillery and the derisive hoots of American militia. Now, eventually, the British would attack the American battery on the far side of the Mississippi, driving off the defending militia and taking the guns. But the commander of this assault realized that the main assault had failed, and so he pulled back, leaving the American defensive position intact to be easily reclaimed. It had been the most one-sided battle of the entire war. In a battle in which the main engagement lasted little more than an hour, the British lost a total of 291 killed, 1,262 wounded, and 484 missing or captured. A total of 2,037 casualties, 20 over 25% of their entire force. It's estimated that at least 30 men drowned in the canal, trying to cross it. Of 11 regimental commanders, 10 were killed or wounded that day. Of 66 company commanders... Wait, wait for this number. 
61 became casualties. Unbelievable. There are seven people left out of the number. Of seven. And a lot of them have bullet holes. Right. It, those well, are not, they, well, dead and wounded. Yeah, oh, okay, it's, okay. Yeah. But only seven got out, got out unscathed. Seven. By contrast, American losses for the whole day were 13 killed, 39 wounded, and 19 captured, all of whom later escaped British captivity that night. Same day. Mm-hmm. A loss rate of 1.2%. Now, sources from both sides state that the most telling factor in the battle was the American artillery, which by all accounts was extremely accurate, fast-firing, and manned by crews that stood their ground with courage. Jean Lafitte affected the course of the New Orleans campaign in a variety of ways, but the most direct way was the performance of his men during the battle itself. The American positions had held, reinforcements were pouring into the area, and the British had taken such a beating that they were exhausted and unable to launch a further attack. The American positions had held, and what remained of the British command structure made the decision to withdraw and regroup. New Orleans was safe, thanks to the efforts of a polyglot force of varying color of skin and national origin, and key among them were the pirates and smugglers of the Baratarian Bayous. Here's the real kicker, though. The Battle of New Orleans, as bloody and decisive as it was within a local context, and as much as it contributed to the legendary status of so many people, and as symbolic it was of the spirit of New Orleans itself, was entirely unnecessary. Yep. Although, in fairness, that is a statement made with the gift of hindsight. Fifteen days before the battle, on Christmas Eve 1814, the Treaty of Ghent had been signed in Belgium, officially bringing an end to the War of 1812 and restoring everything to a state of status quo antebellum, which also managed to make the entire fucking war unnecessary now that I think about it. Mm -hmm. But, given that there was no Treaty of Ghent WhatsApp group, the only way to get news of the peace to the United States was to put the damn paper itself on a ship and send it across the Atlantic. That's, that's wild. That that was the only way to get information was to be present. And that can take a little while. Which is also why, like like we talked earlier, oh, yeah. my horse is dead. I need a new one so everybody can see me and hear me scream at them. Yep. But finally, on February 16th, 1815, the U.S. Congress ratified the treaty and peace was official. Although some small engagements would occur along the Gulf Coast until the second week of March, and British and American warships and privateers were still capturing enemy vessels up to six months after the official cessation of hostilities, because, I, I mean, I guess word just didn't get to them. Yeah. So, with peace once again reigning, what was going to become of the Lafitte brothers? In wartime, they'd forged a new path for themselves and managed to cut what seemed like the deal that would save their asses. But would peace bring further fortune to Jean and Pierre, or would it bring ruin? Now, much as the British withdrew to regroup after the Battle of New Orleans, we're going to withdraw and regroup before we bring you the second half of the episode, which is coming after we take ourselves a short break. Tired of listening to whiskey tubers talk about whiskeys you'll never see? Want to hear reviews about whiskeys you can actually afford? How about something you can truly find on the shelf? Are you looking for honest, unbiased feedback about the whiskeys in your budget? Then join us on YouTube at Thrifty Whiskey. Here at Thrifty Whiskey, we do blind tastings of whiskeys that are $30 and under. Bourbon. Scotch. Irish. Indian. And even Canadian. So catch us at Thrifty Whiskey. And until then, may the winds of fortune sail you. May you sail a gentle sea. May it always be the other guy who said, this drink's on me. So, General Andrew Jackson's forces were victorious. 
The war had ended, and New Orleans had survived, and by extension, so had Jean and Pierre Lafitte. And Jackson learned the value of diversity. <laughs> well, he certainly uh, learned that it existed. Yeah. I'm so glad you're giving us the Florida textbook version. Brought to you by Mickey Mouse. Mm. He saw it, and he was like, holy shit, what if we were the British? <laughs> like, that would be horrible. No, I'm not making that mistake. Yeah. Now, as an interesting aside before we continue, the day after the battle, January 9th, 1815, one of America's first steamboats, named the Enterprise, arrived in New Orleans carrying a cargo of gunpowder, artillery, ammunition, muskets, and cannons, the exact sort of thing the Lafitte's had provided to a desperate Andrew Jackson. After traveling for 4,400 miles in only five and a half weeks up the Mississippi and Ohio rivers and back, Picking up the military stores in a little town now filled with arsenals called Pittsburgh. Mm-hmm. Ooh. Yeah. It was almost Pittsburgh that was a day late in saving New Orleans. We were so British close. <laughs> well, we couldn't we couldn't have the British invasion, but instead we just got polio. Yeah. Which is so we got that we're pretty good. For us, which is pretty nice. Yeah. Now Jackson was pleased as could be with the service of the Lafitte's and their men during the campaign and wrote glowingly of them to federal authorities stating how they, quote, exhibited manifest courage and fidelity, end quote. And on the 6th of February, 1815, the full pardon for both brothers and all of their men was approved. But it soon became clear that the Lafitte brothers had no intention of going legit, and were almost immediately back to smuggling and theft as soon as the post-war military drawdown began. In this time immediately after the war, they also took on another gig, that of spies. Now, they were approached by an unnamed Spanish agent who asked them to inform on activities in New Orleans meant to support the independence efforts of the Central and South American states that were trying to earn their independence from Spain and to pass on information on the very people that the Lafitte supported which, with much of their arms smuggling. Now, the brothers that's the reason they had so many muskets and cannons is that they were generally selling them to the South American and Central American rebels. It wasn't to give to the Americans. They were they were selling it to the guys across the Gulf. <clears throat> Excuse me. The brothers communicated with the Spanish intelligence establishment under the code name 13. Hmm. 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 Now, the problem was for the brothers, the resumption of their old habits hadn't gone unnoticed, and the local authorities, overhauled and strengthened by the importance New Orleans came to play in the war were far less forgiving than they had been before. I think there's a there's another important point here is part of why the brothers were so quick to immediately jump back in their old ways is they kind of expected that the officers involved with the siege on Bateria would be forced to give them back the ships and goods that they had stolen from our pirate friends. Mm-hmm. And obviously they weren't. No, it wasn't part of the agreement. Right. Uh, it's also, they were making a fuck ton of money. Yeah, correct. <laughs> And that's that can be that can be difficult to walk away from. Now Pierre managed to avoid being directly implicated because it seemed that he was always a little bit better at keeping his activities in hidden and wrapped up tight behind legit enterprises. But Jean was still Jean, and Jean ended up with a warrant out for his arrest in March of 1817. Now we don't know whether it was simply because it existed or the opportunity and the opportunity was there or because the Lafitte Spanish spymasters suggested it in order to keep tabs on South American freedom fighters based there, but Jean took to ship and rocked up to a little place on the Gulf Coast of Texas called Galveston Island. Now, Texas at this point was a part of the brand new nation of Mexico. The area was sparsely populated, and so there were few people to bother anyone setting up shop in the area. 
Now, the U.S. Navy was being pressured to respect Mexican territorial waters, and the Spanish Navy had their hands full with other pirate bases in other newly independent countries, so it was unlikely for anyone to come looking for trouble. But it was also close enough to busy shipping lanes to be a convenient spot to launch hunts. Now, the Mexican Navy at this time was pretty much non-existent, as the country was a year old and just getting itself off the ground and was cash poor. So they weren't afraid to make use of any pirates who may have set up shop on the coast to serve as a de facto naval militia. But Lafitte did quite a bit more than just set up a base. He set up his very own town, his own personal smuggler's paradise. Now using his connections and all of the ports that he'd been to, and the influence and operations that Pierre still had going on in New Orleans, Jean Lafitte was able to convince a whole host of enterprising people to come and settle in his new base of operations, which he had named Campeche. Uh, which is an interesting choice, considering that a couple hundred miles to the south on the Mexican coast, there's a city named Campeche. Hmm. Not New Cam- And he didn't name it New Campeche. No, same name. No, not Campeche Nuevo. Just Campeche. It's a catchy name. It's a catchy name. It's a fun name. I like it, but I've, I've developed a new cereal. I've called it Captain Crunch. Well, what about the cereal that already exists called Captain Crunch? No, this is called Captain Crunch. Yeah, you don't understand. This one is Captain Crunch. Yeah. He's I, a captain. I mean, to be fair, as someone who was born in a town called Allentown, that is not the one two and a half miles from where we live called Allentown. Yeah. Oh. In the same goddamn state. Where are you from? Pittsburgh. Oh, really? Me too. Oh, you're from Pittsburgh, Kansas? Oh, that Pittsburgh. Yeah. But this would be like, more like Pittsburgh, Ohio. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, so... That H is real important, though. Love the H. Yeah. Love the H. Now, Lafitte also personally interviewed everyone who arrived and made them swear an oath of loyalty to him as a sort of feudal pirate lord running his own domain. Margalago. <laughs> yeah. Now, technically, he was in Mexico, but if you rocked up and set up shop at Campeche, you were in Jean Lafitte's personal fiefdom. Now, by the end of the year 1817, Lafitte had managed to bring some 200 people to live in his colony, and nearly a dozen ships were based out of the protected bay on the landward side of the island. Soon a construction boom was occurring, and and a fort was built to protect the town, as well as a large two-story building facing the bay that was surrounded by a moat and painted red, and was referred to as the Maison Rouge, which is French for the Red House. And this was the business center of the whole town, a sort of guild hall, where everyone gathered to do deals and exchange goods and currency under Lafitte's watchful eye when he wasn't living on board his ship, the Pride. It, it should be, because you mentioned the, the construction boom, which there certainly was, because they, they built well over 200 buildings. But they started by just tearing every single thing down, and just started completely from scratch. Like he wanted to create his, he wanted to, to design his own city. Yeah. Because there was, was there was a settlement on the island, right? Hmm. It was mostly just like small homes, yeah. but they tore it wasn't down, much. They tore down every structure, and then just built like two hundred. It was like two hundred and twenty-five or two hundred between two hundred and two twenty-five. Yeah, like new good buildings, like sturdy buildings. Like he, this was going to be his town. This was his city. This was his capital. Yeah, meant to be a permanent establishment. Right. Although they're going to find out just how sturdy those buildings are. Correct. Now. Ships would be robbed, and the goods brought to Campeche, where Lafitte would pay captains to then sail off to smugglers, sail them off to smugglers in other ports, and the smuggling hub on Galveston Island just kept on growing. It was the the hub in a wheel full of spokes that went out to other other smuggling operations. Now, by the end of 1818, the town had almost two 
1,000 residents and, as Chris said, consisted of over 200 separate structures. It's estimated that Lafitte's operations on Galveston at the colony's height were bringing in over $2 million a year in 1818 dollars, roughly a quarter of a billion at modern purchasing power. Now, it was a lot of the same game he was running in New Orleans, but this also meant that one of the commodities that he was trading and smuggling was human beings. And Lafitte dove into the smuggling of enslaved people, especially as especially as post-war America's American slave trading markets began to feel the financial bite of the banning of the import of the enslaved. Remember the, mm-hmm. uh, I forget the name of the act exactly, but in 1808, the importing of slaves from outside the United States was outlawed. Slave trading could still take place, it just had to be within our borders. Made, made American. <clears throat> yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Now, in... Yeah, yeah, that's the question. Was that a was that a, a handout to the abolitionists, or was that just to stimulate the American economy? I don't know. Well, isn't it always or to maybe stimulate the economy? Maybe. Because remember yeah. that one time we weren't allowed to go out to eat for two weeks, and now everything's five dollars. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, in this effort, Lafitte paired up with another semi-mythologized figure from American history. Admittedly, before he became famous. A man named James Bowie. Hmm. Now, this future hero of the Alamo was Kentucky-born, but had moved south to Louisiana as a teenager and had joined the Louisiana militia during the War of 1812, about two days too late to take part in the Battle of New Orleans. Now, Bowie and Lafitte both took advantage of the laws that were in place and the loopholes to make a fortune. Lafitte's ships would capture a slave ship, take the human cargo, then sail to Galveston where Bowie would buy them from the pirates for a discounted price before taking them to an American port. Now, given that informers on slave smuggling were immune from prosecution, Bowie would then inform on himself at the local customs house, and the enslaved people would then be confiscated, while Bowie walked free, even though he was the one doing the smuggling. However, these enslaved people would then be sold by the state at auction where Bowie would buy them back and bribed customs officials would then pass half the money he paid back to Bowie, who would then take the now legally acquired enslaved people and sell them to buyers within the United States at a premium, doubling or even tripling his initial investment. USA. USA. <laughs> now, now, this grotesque practice would make Bowie the money that would allow him to become a significant landowner in Texas and an influential figure in Texas independence before his death at the Battle of the Alamo. In two years, he made $65,000 doing this. Jesus. In 1818. Now, once again, however, Lafitte managed to step on his own dick. While Campeche grew, Lafitte ended up with more vessels reporting to him, but as the enterprise got larger and people were making more money... He couldn't exert the control over his pirates the way that he was able to before. Not long after the, ta- after the town was almost completely wiped out by a hurricane in 1820 and was struggling to rebuild, all but six buildings were completely destroyed. <laughs> Not good. Bad day. Bad day for Campeche. Some of Lafitte's captains began attacking American ships against his will. And the U.S. Navy, now growing in the Gulf to a legitimate squadron size with some pretty major warships so that they could interdict piracy and slave smuggling, took some issue with this mm. and dispatched the 16-gun schooner USS Enterprise under Commander Lawrence Kearney 
to deal with the Galveston pirate problem. After a quick and effective bombardment of Campeche's fort by the Enterprise and the capture of two vessels trying to escape, Lafitte decided to ask for parley and agreed to dismantle his base, or what remained of it, in return for clemency and was allowed to sail off into the Gulf on the Pride, having set all of his pirate underlings loose and having burned the fort, the Maison Rouge, and the few remaining buildings in the town of Campeche. His little pirate kingdom experiment was now over. As, but, as they almost always are. Yeah. It turns out it's really hard to just start a kingdom. Mm-hmm. Now, by the fall of 1821, things were getting far more difficult for both of the Lafitte brothers. However, the plural of brothers, sadly, is something we're going to abandon in our story from this point forward. By 1821, Pierre was in Mexico, and nobody's really sure what he was doing there. Possibly working on a spying mission for the Spaniards, or coordinating smuggling efforts, or even an arms deal with South American rebels still fighting to overcome Spanish hegemony, or even commanding his own privateering mission. But what we do know is that sometime in the autumn of 1821, at the age of 51 years old, Pierre Lafitte died in the small town of Zilam de Bravo on the Yucatan Peninsula, likely of yellow fever or malaria, but a terminal disease such as cancer or tuberculosis isn't out of the realm of possibility. Mm -hmm. He was buried locally, but unfortunately his exact gravesite has been lost to time. Now after his brother's death and his expulsion from his base on Galveston Island, Jean Lafitte seems to have lived a somewhat itinerant life, sailing around the Gulf of Mexico and spending short periods in various ports, including his former bases of New Orleans and Galveston, because he would, he would come back. He might have gotten kicked out, but he would come back. He wouldn't stay long, but, you know, rock back up occasionally. But he'd also hang out in other ports in Mexico, Central and South America, Cuba, and possibly as far east as Haiti and Puerto Rico, and continued sailing around claiming privateer, privateer status and taking prizes, mostly Spanish. However, the last major era of piracy in the Americas was waning as authorities in both the Spanish and American national governments began to put diplomatic and political pressure on the navies operating in the area to crack down on piracy and smuggling. Alongside this, the U.S. Navy was increasing its patrols in the Gulf of Mexico and the Caribbean in order to interdict the international slave trade, and as a result of both measures, U.S. Navy schooners, sloops, and, and frigates were a far more common sight in the waters in which Jean Lafitte operated, and his ability to take prizes and smuggle goods into places like Galveston and New Orleans was much reduced. Now things truly turned to shit when on November 5, 1821, the Pride was overhauled by the 30-gun corvette USS John Adams, and Lafitte wisely surrendered without a fight. Hugely outgunned. Now he and his crew were taken into custody and jailed in New Orleans to await trial on charges of piracy. But within a couple of months, Lafitte had escaped jail, likely with outside help from his many remaining contacts and friends within the city, although details on the escape don't really exist, and he returned to the bayous to hide out and later make good his escape. Now it turns out, Lafitte may not have had any letter of mark to legally go privateering after all, but he had told his crews that he did. Ooh. He, he had some, but they probably were fake. <laughs> he had some... <laughs> That he made. <laughs> he Yeah, he had issued himself and all, well, his ships, and this was like ships leaving Galveston, fake letters of mark from a country that doesn't exist. <laughs> Poyes? I don't see any reason why not. Was, was that it? Was it? But yeah, they were just issuing letters this of This is mark. about the same time. It, it's pretty close. I can't remember what country it was. I, I don't recall it, but I know that, but they were... It was just, it's like, here's a letter yeah. of Mark issued by a fake country. Also, you're going to fly the Spanish flag. Yeah. Oh, cool. 
Sweet. Sweet. That's easy enough. I yeah. can do that. <laughs> You're going to fly the Spanish flag yeah. and also take Spanish prizes. But it appears that they may have actually staged a mutiny sometime in early 1822 when it was revealed to them that they didn't actually have any valid privateering commission, the result of which was the breakup of Lafitte's little pirate squadron and the continued downslide of his fortunes. However, he still had a ship and his own ingenuity, and he established a small base on the north coast of Cuba in 1822, and then showed another change in his behavior. After his last arrest, it seemed for the first time as though Lafitte became focused on hunting American ships. Now, this new trend was short-lived, however, and he only managed to take two American vessels before his ship was run down by the 20-gun sloop of war USS Peacock, again taking Lafitte into custody without resistance. Lafitte may have done some rash shit, but he never tried to fight a full-fledged warship. The Peacock's crew turned Lafitte over to the local Spanish authorities, but he was almost immediately and inexplicably released. Although we can make an educated guess that bribery probably had something to do with it. Now Lafitte was right back to sea, and decided that smuggling goods into Cuba was his next move. This was the wrong move, as the local Spanish officials were the ones running the local smuggling racket, and Lafitte's butting in on the game was hurting their bottom line, so a warrant was issued for his arrest. He had the good sense to leave Cuba and headed south to the nation of Gran Colombia, which a few years before had declared its independence, but was still much, still very much at war with Spain. Now somehow, we don't know how exactly, Lafitte got a meeting with President Simón Bolívar and was granted a legitimate letter of mark to go hunt Spanish vessels and was even given a brand new ship, the schooner General Santander. Alongside this new gig, he also found a side hustle, being hired by American merchant ships sailing into and out of the Gulf ports to closely escort them through pirate-infested waters for what I'm sure was a modest fee. Now, however, as good as Lafitte could be at sea, and as slippery as he could be at avoiding justice, it all came to an end on the 4th of February, 1823. Hunting in the waters off of Honduras, Lafitte and the General Santander were chasing down what appeared to be a pair of unarmed Spanish merchant vessels on a night of heavy cloud and low visibility. He gained on the two prizes, but suddenly both vessels turned back around to engage Lafitte's ship, opening up cleverly hidden gun ports to reveal full batteries of cannon. The two merchant vessels were, in fact, heavily armed Spanish privateers, determined to hunt down raiders paid by the breakaway Soviet South American states. Now, we don't have any detailed accounts of the battle itself, but there was a short and ferocious engagement where the General Santander and her crew fought valiantly, but were heavily outgunned and battered severely by broadside after broadside. However, though she was damaged, the ship managed to give her opponents the slip and break out of the fight, disappearing into the dark, gloomy night to fight another day. However, the same cannot be said for Jean Lafitte. Severely wounded by a musket shot, it's believed that he died during the night of February 5th, 1823, and was buried at sea in the Gulf of Honduras. He was 45 years old. After his death, notices appeared in exactly zero American newspapers. Although diaries speak of a full public funeral service in New Orleans once the news got out, with thousands in attendance to honor the disgraced former hero they still thought of as one of their own. Now, it's no doubt that the legacy of Jean and Pierre Lafitte lay heavy in the area around New Orleans. First, there's the bar. Now, located on, down on the eastern end of Bourbon Street, at the corner of Bourbon and St. Philip, 
where it doesn't smell nearly as much of old piss and vomit. <laughs> I'm serious. You go down, you get down no, to the you're eastern right. end of Bourbon Street, and it gets better. It's one of the oldest surviving buildings in the French Quarter, going back as far as perhaps 1770 and having survived the Vieux-Carré's many fires and, of course, quite a number of hurricanes. Mm. Now, the actual background of the building is lost to legend, but there are several stories behind its provenance. Some say that the business, is, that, the business that inhabited this building was a blacksmith shop run by Pierre Lafitte as one of the many fronts they had for, in their city for their activities. Now, other stories say that their fellow pirate and associate, Renato Belluch, owned the building, and while the Lafitte's weren't operating there, they could often be found there. Now, the building was on record as a blacksmith shop later in the 19th century, but that was long after the Lafitte's were both long gone, and it passed through a few iterations before 1941, when New Orleans businessman Tom Kaplinger bought the now-abandoned property and turned it into the Café Lafitte, which became a hotspot for the city's bohemian set and a refuge for the French Quarter's gay community, Hmm. and hosted personalities such as Noel Coward and Tennessee Williams. Hmm. Now, Kaplinger ran into title issues, and the building was sold in 1953, and the operation moved down to the street to another bar named Café Lafitte in Exile. Oh, my God. Which still exists, still carries the name, and claims to be the oldest extant gay bar in the United States. That's awesome. I was not able to, I did not have the time to follow up on that claim to see if it was actually true. Chris, you may know. There's a lot of murkiness involving, like... Not that it's the oldest gay bar, but, like, did the Lafitte's own any of this mm-hmm. shit? Like, probably not. There's a lot of people that tried to capitalize on Lafitte. It's it's a sexy story. Yeah. He was a hero in New Orleans. Um, but all we really know is that they were, they did own a blacksmith shop. Mm-hmm. Where it was? Mm, was it in this spot? We don't know. Yeah, we don't. But we know that they owned a blacksmith shop. Yeah, there is there is actual that's, record evidence. To that's kind this. of it. I mean, as far as, like, their dealings... Pre-taking to sea, which is wild that we have more more knowledge of like their criminal activities than literally anything else about these brothers. It would be fun if blacksmith shop was like 18th century queer coding for the spot where all the gay dudes hung out. That's what it was. Just big, burly, shirtless dudes in aprons hitting things. Nothing's changed. Yeah, yeah I was gonna say. Uh, you're basically just <laughs> describing most of Bourbon Street now. You're just in time for Bear Week. <laughs> Which is apparently actually a thing on um, in uh, Provincetown. <laughs> I can see that. Yeah. So, uh, the original spot was soon occupied by another bar and was declared a National Historic Landmark in 1970 and to this day plays host to Lafitte's Blacksmith Shop, one of the French Quarter's most popular bars, carrying a dingy pirate theme and a host of stories of the building's history, along with being purported to be one of the French Quarter's most haunted venues. Ooh. Have you been there? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I went to. Um, it was... I didn't do like a ghost tour or anything. Like I wasn't in New Orleans long, so it was mm-hmm. basically a lot of like hurrying up and down the French Quarter. Yeah. Uh, I, I went. I was in New Orleans on pain meds, so I wasn't supposed to drink. This is the one bar where I stopped and had an alcoholic beverage. Nice. Um, and honestly? Yeah, it's funny you should mention that. When I was in New Orleans, I was also on pain medication. <laughs> you and I took it. <laughs> You and I took a different... Yeah, this is true. You and yeah, I took a very I different approach. Because I found some on the ground. It yeah. was a different time. <laughs> now, about 25 minutes to the south of the city sits the Jean Lafitte National Historic Park and Preserve, administered by the National Park Service, consisting of seven separate sites dedicated to preserving the natural splendor of the Mississippi Delta and the Baratarian Bayou, preserving and celebrating Cajun history, and the preservation of the Battle of New Orleans Battlefield, 
as well as an accompanying military cemetery, which happens to have more graves of black Civil War veterans than any other site in the nation. Hmm. Now, not only is this national park named for Jean Lafitte, so are many places along the Gulf. Now, for example, there are two towns in Jefferson Parish that are named for him. There's Lafitte, Louisiana, population 972. Which and, counts. That counts, according to counts. the census. <laughs> and Jean Lafitte, Louisiana, population 1,809, well, both numbers as of the 2020 census. They are nine miles apart. <laughs> Exceptional. You To drive from Lafitte, Louisiana to Jean Lafitte, Louisiana, you need to make exactly zero turns. It is a, I am not kidding, it is a precisely straight road. <laughs> do they do they have an annual LaFoot race that just runs from one to another? Because you, didn't didn't make that joke. you didn't gonna, have to I'm make that joke. Though. You didn't have to make that joke. And you did. Keith's not even here. <laughs> now, the Lafitte's have also been very popular figures in media since their lifetime. Now, Jean was the supposed subject of Lord Byron's 1814 epic poem, The Corsair, a work which has influenced the writing of verse for more than two centuries. There's been a whole raft of biographies, novels, and comic books that have featured the Lafitte's, mainly Jean, from epic swashbuckling tales from the early 1900s to scary stories to tell in the dark to the Zorro universe, as well as several video games and role-playing games. Now, Jean Lafitte was the protagonist in several films, the first of which was directed by Cecil B. DeMille in 1938 and simply called The Buccaneer, which popularized the story of Jean Lafitte in the wider American imagination with Frederick March playing Lafitte, and a later remake by the same name 20 years later, directed by Anthony Quinn and starring Yul Brynner as Jean Lafitte and Charlton Heston as Andrew Jackson. Old Charlie. Now, Jean Lafitte... Of Wayne's World 2 fame. Yeah. Now, Jean Lafitte is a major figure in the various iterations of the Pirates of the Caribbean rides across the Disney parks, and plans were made but never followed through on to connect the Pirates of the Caribbean, the Haunted Mansion, and Tom Sawyer's Island using Jean Lafitte. A tunnel, stylized as a pirate catacomb, was supposed to run from the entrance by the pirate's ride on one end to Jean Lafitte's crypt outside the haunted mansion on the other, and in the middle was an exit onto Tom Sawyer's island that was contained within what was said to be the wreck of Lafitte's old ship. That would have been actually super cool. Kind of fun, kind of creative. That is pretty sweet. Yeah. Unfortunately, they never followed through with it. It was planned. I it was, it was planned for Disney World in the nineteen late nineteen seventies, but they never the, never got around to it. The ride is the feet's landing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's yeah. like it's like the, the where the, the boat is docked. Like it's like where the ride starts. Is the sign the sign the swinging sign? It's very cool. Yep. Then there's the journals. <laughs> oh, this is so mm, yeah. funny. Lafitte apparently he definitely did keep his own journals during his lifetime. Of, admittedly, the ones even he kept during his lifetime were of dubious veracity. But in 1948, a man named John Andrakine Laughlin, who claimed to be a, a name. descendant of Jean Lafitte, and I'll explain why later, approached the Missouri Historical Society with a French-language manuscript that he claimed to, was a journal that Jean Lafitte kept from 1845 to 1850. They refused to authenticate the claim, so Laughlin sold the rights to use the journals to several authors who wrote biographies of Jean Lafitte with this stunning new data that he was actually still around after Texas became a state. Now, the ink and paper were confirmed by a later examination to be of mid-19th century origin. But in 1980, the Sam Houston Library in Texas did further analysis 
and found the handwriting to be almost entirely identical to Laughlin's. <laughs> and they later connected some more dots and found that Laughlin, who claimed that Jean Lafitte had gone into hiding after his supposed death at sea and changed his name to John Laughlin, uh, also had been accused over his life of forging letters and journals from Abraham Lincoln, Andrew Jackson, and Davy Crockett, that's, among many, many others. That's the funniest part. Like, the guy had already been busted for forging. Under that like name. dozens like, of times. Right. Like, Didn't bother to change his name. Obvious forgeries. Yeah. But it is, unfortunately, still to this day, spawning tales of Jean Lafitte's life that are nothing close to the truth. But there is truth in how so many people ever since used the same spots and methods the Lafitte's used to make their underground fortune. The Baratarian bayous were used for decades after by smugglers and black marketeers to bring all sorts of goods into the lower Mississippi region in a way that denied the tax man his cut. Rum runners and bootleggers used the marshes to smuggle in millions of gallons of prohibited booze, all while the organized crime figures of the time dumped bodies out in the same swamps for the gators to take care of. Drug cartels in the 70s and 80s used the bayous as a funneling point to bring in kilo after kilo of South American coke, weed, and heroin, not to mention all manner of arms, cash, boats, and people. They're a big fan of uh, flying into the bayous using seaplanes back in the 80s. Mm. Really big on seaplanes, the Colombian cartels. Yeah, it's a cool thing. Yeah. It's a plane and it's a boat. Like, it's just a cool thing. Flying your seaplane while you're wearing your linen blazer with the sleeves rolled up. And, and another thing about shoes. a seaplane is you can fly those things just as close to the water as you want when it's when the, when the waters are calm, which is well under radar. And the worst thing that happens is if there's a gust and it drives you down, you're just a boat. Yep. So your plane's not going to hit the water and explode. You'll just skip off. And you can fly under not just, like, land-based radar off of the Coast Guard cutters. You yep. are under their radar. <laughs> yeah. Those Coast Guard cutters are not big. Like it's it's not don't it's not a you know an aircraft carrier. No. It's not a cruise ship. It's not a destroyer. And they're not very big. And they can move at a pretty good clip, but they're not mm-hmm. catching a seat. And they're not mm-hmm. catching a plane. No. And planes were faster than helicopters. Mm-hmm. And those boats were really good at catching boats. Yeah. <laughs> As evidenced by that one dude that just caught a submarine by himself. <laughs> I miss that guy. I'm surprised that thing stayed on the surface and was not dragged down into the depths <laughs> by the weight of that guy's gigantic brass testicles. He, That's the most masculine thing I have ever seen in my yeah. entire life. It was like three dudes from Predator just mashed together. <laughs> he just jumped in rough waters off of a raft onto a submarine, again, like water up to his knees. And banged on the hatch so hard. And just so ran up. It just starts, like, just hammering on a hood. Like, they opened the door. (laughs) The guy just went, I'm sorry. (laughs) At that point, like, what if you pissed that guy off? Like, this is the guy not that mad yet. (laughs) I don't know this story. We'll show you the video video after the episode. Amazing. This is what, 19? Yeah, thereabouts. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, If you're out there and you haven't seen this video, just go on YouTube and search Coast Card... Coast Guard captures drug submarine. And it's... Uh, and we have find it. We do have to call it a submarine. You know, it's, they can't dive or anything. It's basically... The, the top of the boat is basically like a tube. Like, they don't dive. They don't submerge. They just... They're really hard to see. Yeah. The bulk of it is under the water. But yeah, my man just jumps off of a raft, runs up, and just starts hammering <laughs> on a thing. 
And like even the dudes on the on the raft are like, holy shit. (laughs) But the bayous can still be a dangerous place, excuse me. As human traffickers and gangs still see the bayous as a highway, not a barrier. Those who make their living by more ethical means on the bayou know when to keep to themselves and turn their boats around and go find somewhere else to be. But that's also alongside fortune seekers who hear stories of the Lafitte's supposed buried treasure, who still travel the bayous on kayaks and airboats to see if they can find the lost wealth of New Orleans' most famous ne'er-do-wells. Did you find any gold? No, but I found a lot of cocaine. Hmm. <laughs> Sequel to Cocaine Bear, Cocaine Gator. I would watch the hell out of that movie. <laughs> now, despite all the falsehoods, the exaggerations, and the tall tales, the lives of Pierre and John Lafitte are an incredibly compelling story and people are still drawn to their legend for all their faults. Now, we as a society are drawn to the stories of gangsters and organized criminals who achieve great wealth and power while thumbing their nose at the authorities, of commanders and common soldiers who play pivotal roles in the battles that shape our history, or daring and swashbuckling adventurers who made their own way in the world, and of men who were willing to contribute to causes of freedom and independence at the risk of their own. The Lafitte brothers encompass all of these factors, and at the same time embody the spirit and cosmopolitan of the history that they called home. Now, they were no heroes, not by a long shot, having played their role in the continuance of the trafficking of people in the wretched institution of American slavery. But for better or worse, these brothers, Jean and Pierre Lafitte, are deeply ensconced in the American story, and will be for a long time to come. And that's the story of the brothers Lafitte. They walked into the French the French embassy and asked for a letter of Mark while they were like actively being hunted on trial. Like they weren't allowed to be there. They just like kind of waltzed (laughs) in. Uh, And also uh, they never took a French vessel. American. Yes. So, so it is. Yes. So it is claimed. Yes. (laughs) So it is claimed. They're also, you know, they also claimed that, um, and it's probably that's likely why they yeah. were looking for the protection of the French. And it's also in, until after their their capture by uh, John's capture by the USS John Adams, he mm-hmm. supposedly never attacked an American vessel. It makes for a good story. Is it exactly true? We don't really have a good way to prove that because also these guys were pretty famous. These guys were pretty famous. So like if you were if you would have been taken by them, like. You probably would have recognized them. But they also was gen- known for like being very handsome. But they also generally operated on catch and release mm-hmm. with these vessels. They tended to run up, steal your cargo, and then sail off. They they weren't huge on taking ships unless the ship itself was incredibly valuable. Mm-hmm. They weren't taking them just to take them. Yeah, it's also because and they also they, weren't burning them. They were just were, giving them back to you. Thanks for the goods. Here's your ship. Yeah, they they Thanks did the have time. they had. Uh, a notoriety for that. Well, if you come upon but, an orchard, are you going to pick the fruit and let it grow next year? Are you going to chop down the trees for firewood? Well, I, I'm an American. I chop down the tree, I burn the field, and then I burn my neighbor's field. And then I'm going to salt his earth so nothing ever grows again. Suck it. <laughs> Got him, Kyle. Oh, beautiful. <laughs> for but, uh, spacious sky. The, the brothers Lafitte were also very good at getting people to join their cause. They were. Like, they, they didn't really have to take... Of us, they had people that wanted to work with them. They were they were canny businessmen. Yeah, and, and it's and it seems like it's through a combination of force of personality and just throwing money at it. Mm-hmm. It's also after the embargo act. They were so good at bringing in the goods that people wanted that the, the all the the business owners were furious. If there's a, 
if, if there's a market good. for it, find your niche, man. Like like we're doing with this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> find your niche. But yeah, it's it's a compelling story and you know, are they deserving of the hero worship they tend to get down in the Gulf? No. I, I, I think I can understand why though. I, I mean they, they did save the city of New Orleans from I the attacking it. British. Yeah. Because the British were just torching cities at this point. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I I get it, but it You know, the the, the the connection to slave smuggling is enti- is very troubling. Really kind of tarnishes well, their you, legacy. If you take slave opinion. smuggling out of the equation, there's there's not a lot of famous people in the South. That's true. You know, it's like that's the unfortunate reality yeah. of the situation. Whenever the economy was based on people, <laughs> yeah, I can think of one person we've talked about associated with the American South who, and that's Robert Small. Yeah, I was going to say, and he was on the very much the opposite end of that right. coin. Oh, you mean the freed man? Yes. Yeah. I'm not going to wait on them to free me. I'm going to free myself, and then I'm just going to steal a and warship this boat. <laughs> <laughs> this. But I, I do understand the yeah. hero worship of the Lafitte's. Um, is it misguided? Probably. Yeah. I mean, they, at the end of the day, they were pirates. Mm-hmm. They were thieves. They were they were murderers. Human smugglers. Yeah. Uh, and most of it is profiteering. It's a sexy story. A pirate saved the town. This is where he lived. Yeah. Uh, he, you know, he, he put a bounty on the governor after the governor put a bounty on him. Like, it's a great story. That, I, admittedly, I, is my favorite moment yeah. of, of the whole story. What a... What a Dick drop too. It's, like it's, it's it's that, and it's it's Jackson going. Well, we don't have any weapons, and Lafitte's going. Funny you should say that. You know what? We've got a bunch of them. Yeah. Like, oh, you need cannons and shot. I have cannons and shot. You're gonna have to give us a day though, because moving this 32 pounder out of the swamp's gonna be a bitch. Just comes out being dragged by six gators. <laughs> <laughs> Just a. T- just an eight gator team pulling a flat boat like Santa's sleigh. Right. Cage, yeah, Cajun claws. Oh boy. Anyway, any other thoughts, gentlemen, on uh, Jean and Pierre Lafitte? An absolutely fascinating character. Like, characters, I, 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 we characters. Say. But I, I know we and kind that, of focus on Jean. And that's what's particular about this is because you know a lot of people do just focus on the story of Jean Lafitte. You don't get the story of Jean Lafitte without Pierre. Uh, right, but Pierre made it kind of made it a point to not really be in the story. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He was very good at not being the guy. He was playing the straight man on the public-facing side of that right. whole operation. And, yeah. and his brother very much liked being the guy. You know, he he liked that. I mean, he was... The, the people really liked him. They mm-hmm. talked to... Like, in, even in, like, newspapers and stuff, it talked about how he was tall and handsome, and he was, like, strikingly dressed at all times. Spoke a bunch of languages. Which know, is very cool. Could, could code switch between talking to... You know the 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 upper crust and the the low the lower elements. He had that remarkable ability. Mm-hmm. He could make friends in any space he walked into. Apparently, you know, it's definitely the the one of us quality yeah. that I I think is kind of endeared him to that. And and if it didn't, you wouldn't name all the game preserves after him. Yep. You know, yeah. And it's it's also like on on our because we I have a giant list of potential topics that we pull topics from, and this is a little inside baseball here. But on that list, when I first wrote the list, I only had Jean Lafitte. Right. And then I stopped and I thought, I don't think I can just tell the story of Jean Lafitte because Pierre has such a role to play in this. Correct. And he also, he like his brother, he meets a bad end. But, yeah, and again, you, you just don't get the story of one without the other. 
They are intimately tied not just by blood, but by by function. They are a complete symbiotic unit between the two of them. And that's also something that makes the story so interesting, is we aren't talking about an individual here. We're talking about this two-man team that... God, they were good at what they did. They were very good at what they did. They're they're in a very rarefied atmosphere of the people that we have talked about. Ching Shi with you know her mm-hmm. eighty thousand pi. I mean, you, the brothers Lafitte had like a thousand men. What about a thousand people their, working yeah. for them at their height. Yeah, Be, mostly volunteer. That is and, not and, a small operation, and that's not including the colonists. Yeah, they weren't press ganging anybody. No, it, and whenever they they started like trying to build their pirate kingdom, everybody that wanted to move there was personally interviewed by Jean Lafitte. Mm-hmm. But even when They're, they were in New Orleans, they he'd be walking around the town and say, "Oh, you got a you got a boat? Cool. You want to make some extra cash? Yeah, I got, come, I, I know. Come a guy. by the blacksmith shop. Right. We'll talk. And yeah, it's what a would, really really compelling what would story. Pirate Uber Eats be? Uber Fleets? Yes. Cool. Yeah. yeah, I like that one. Not bad. Uber Fleets. That's, that is... Oh, I like that. I'm not doing better than yeah. that. So, anyway, I think we're going to wrap it up there. Chris, if people want to find us out there, where can they do it? You can email us at trrpod at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you if you have any suggestions, any corrections, anything we might have missed. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at podcasttrr. If you have any episode ideas... Yeah, we love that. We love we love hearing naughty limericks, nudes, some yeah, some spicy nudes, some Lafitte picks. <laughs> uh, you can follow us on Instagram at trrpod. You can find us on Facebook simply by searching Thieves, Rogues, and Renegades. And if you would like to join us in Valhalla, look no further than www.patreon.com/trrpod. And uh, just a reminder to everybody out there: we are now on Spotify. You can find us yeah, on they... the biggest single music streaming platform in the world. Yeah, they paid us $100 million. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we're not like the big guys. You know, we're still the plucky underdogs. But, yeah, you know, clawing our way up towards Rogan status. What did he get? Wasn't it like $180 million? It was a lot. It was so much. I mean, it was it was definitely in the realm of what I'd call fuck you money. It's so dumb. <laughs> it's, it's so much. It's It's a lot of just like... Watching him and Duncan Trussell just getting high in a studio in Austin. Right. <laughs> I mean, I, it's God so bless him. God bless him. But that is a lot of cash. That's Lafitte money. <laughs> That's Lafitte money. He is the Jean Lafitte of the podcasting world. If you're God. good at something, don't do it for free. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so we'll uh, we'll see everybody next time. Thank you for listening. And next time we are getting witchy. And uh, we're going to figure out exactly why children are nothing but utterly terrifying. So, uh, this one goes out to all the parents out there. Yeah. um, (laughs) It's going to be a change of pace. I'm looking forward to it. And it's going to get very silly, very British. And uh, I don't, and it's not going to remind me of the smell of Bourbon Street. So... Mm. I am gonna go. That smell fucking sticks with you, man. It's. So, I am gonna go find it's some. So thick. <laughs> I'm gonna go find some smelling salts and a little bit of therapy, and we'll see you next time. Hold fast, everybody. Bye. <laughs>